Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Moroni 7 through 9. Now, before we jump in, we want to let you know that we plan to continue to do these videos through the Come Follow Me Doctrine and Covenants year, and we look forward to learning together with you. So please join us. Okay, this set of chapters that we're going to cover today are, are amazing. They're all Mormon, so this is Moroni, who has now inserted a talk that his father gave probably many years before, if not decades before, in the synagogue, back before the, the Nephites had been running for their life. And then chapter 8 is a letter that Mormon wrote to his son regarding some practices like infant baptism, and then chapter 9 is a second letter that Mormon had written to his son near the end, uh, when, when things had started to get really bad. For the Nephites and uh, the Lamanites were destroying them. So we're gonna we're gonna cover all three of these, but most of our time is going to be spent in chapter seven, in this speech that Mormon gave in the synagogue. It's it's remarkable. I can only imagine what it would have been like to be there live, and and to listen to him speaking live. So let's pick it up in verse two. And now I, Mormon, speak unto you, my beloved brethren, and it is by the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy will, because of the gift of his calling unto me, that I am permitted to speak unto you at this time. Did you notice what just happened there? Mormon has been called to a high and holy calling, uh, and it looks, from all indications, an apostolic calling and he's not relying on his calling alone. He's recognizing that the calling has been extended, he's been set apart to this calling, but it's by the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, it's by their grace that he's able to then function in this calling that he's been given. That is critical for us to understand moving forward in time, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, recognizing that regardless of what the calling is that we have, or the role that we have. It could be in relationships, it could be in, in a church calling, it could be in opportunities in your community or with politics, whatever it is, whatever God has allowed you to have, uh, it's by his grace and the grace of his Son alone that you can then actually do what needs to be done in that calling and have hope to, to move forward. Now look at verse 3. Now consider the source as we look at verse 3, coming from Mormon, all right? Wherefore I would speak unto you that are of the church, that are the peaceable followers of Christ, and that have obtained a sufficient hope by which ye can enter into the rest of the Lord from this time henceforth until ye shall rest with him in heaven. Coming from the stylus of Mormon, that statement is remarkable because here's a prophet who we don't know exactly when he's giving this speech to his people, but he knows. He knows the lay of the land spiritually. He knows the direction things are trending for the Nephites. He, he probably has a pretty good sense by this time that this isn't going to end well for the people, and yet notice he's talking about obtaining a sufficient hope by which ye can enter into the rest of the Lord from this time henceforth until ye shall rest with him in heaven. I think if Mormon were here today, he could look at the lay of our cultural and societal land and say, whoa, this is rough, there, there's a lot of unrest, there's a lot of iniquity, a lot of wickedness, there's a lot of good being called evil and a lot of evil being called good going on here, but you don't have to get caught up in it. You can have hope in Christ that you can move forward for the rest of time through all of this turmoil and, and tribulation that's going on around us, and you can find joy in the journey, as President Monson was uh, fond of saying, throughout the, uh, the rest of our lives and into the future. 
Now, jump over to verse 5. For I remember the word of God which saith, By their works ye shall know them, for if their works be good, then they are good also. That little concept right there launches him into this next segment he's going to give you between comparing between good and evil and judging. Notice what he did, however. He's, he, he's quoting the Lord. He says, For I remember the word of God, which saith, By their works ye shall know them. If you do a search on that phrase, By their works ye shall know them, you're only going to find it here in the Book of Mormon. But back in 3 Nephi 14, Jesus said, By their fruits ye shall know them. What Mormon seems to be doing, we would assume, is he's interpreting Jesus's word fruits and this allegory of using a tree and by their fruits ye shall know them, and he's taking the word fruits and he's saying, let me tell you what that is, it's your works, it's what you do, which makes perfect sense, right? We live in a world that almost seems to insist that we keep looking here, the world has taken Jesus' statement, by their fruits ye shall know them, and has twisted it to say, by their roots ye shall know them. Consequently, we have people who spend more time trying to dig up dirt on historical uh, prophets and even the Book of Mormon itself, trying to find flaws in where it came from and how we got it and how it, how it was produced, I love the fact that Mormon is giving a second witness to Jesus' words to say, it's by their fruits that ye shall know them. Taste it. We're commanded to taste the fruits. That's how we come to know if something's real. So I love that at the outset here he's saying, if you want to really judge something, it's, it's by the fruits that that thing is to be judged. Then he goes into this section here for verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, where he almost, to some people, and I've heard people talk about this, they've said, wow, Mormon, he's really, really uh, polarizing. It's either all good or all bad, and they'll use verse, uh, verse 7, 8, 9 um, to, to verify this. Check it out. I'm going to lead in with verse 6. For behold, God hath said, A man being evil cannot do that which is good. For if he offereth a gift, or prayeth unto God, except he shall do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. So there are some who say, wow, Mormon, it's really, it's really polarizing here to say you either have to be righteous or giving gifts doesn't do any good, or look at verse 9. Likewise also it is it counted evil unto a man if he shall pray, and not with real intent of heart, yea, and it profiteth him nothing, for God receiveth none such. Wherefore, a man being evil cannot do that which is good, neither will he give a good gift. Now, before you jump into this um, arena of pointing out perhaps what is limited or flawed with Mormon's perspective, I prefer to give God's prophets the benefit of the doubt whenever possible, and this is one of those cases where instead of saying, oh, well, I would disagree with Mormon on this, I would say, wow, read carefully what he's saying and notice what happens, and read all of it. Don't stay stuck in one or two verses. Read all of Mormon's words and you get to know Mormon's heart. You understand his perspective better. Look what he says in verse 13 and 14. But behold, that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually, wherefore everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve him is inspired of God. Now verse 14, wherefore take heed, my beloved brethren, that ye do not judge that which is evil to be of God or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. Did you catch that? He's giving you this, this dichotomy here between good and evil, and he's saying, make sure that you don't judge to be evil that which is good or that which is good to be evil. 
and you can tell by the fruits. It's back to this tree analogy again. Here's the point. Who's, Who's ultimately the one who's going to decide, ultimately, finally, what's evil and what's good? Whose prayers are beneficial and whose prayers aren't? Whose works are beneficial and whose works aren't? That's not our job, ultimately, to make a final judgment on that. We get to make a different kind of judgment. And uh, Elder Dallin H. Oaks gave a great talk back in 1998, March of 98, called Judge Not and Judging. And in there, he makes it very clear that there are two kinds of judgments. There are final judgments and there are intermediate judgments. And his point is this is not your job. Final judgment belongs to God alone. That's it. It's not our role to to make those, those final assessments. But he said we have to make intermediate judgments all the time in life, or you can't live. Every, every time you make a decision, you're making an intermediate judgment. So using that framework, we now have lenses through which to understand and interpret what Mormon's teaching us here, and it's beautiful in this realm of verse 16 and 17. Okay? Notice, behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is making all kinds of truth claims, and people, it's like Joseph Smith history, low here, low there, we've come, come to me, I've got the truth, and others know I've got the truth, and there's, there's contention, and there's disputation, and there's disagreement all over the place. You'll notice what Mormon is doing here, and it's refreshing. He's saying the Spirit of Christ is given to every man. What percentage? That would be a hundred. Every person can know good from evil. We all have within us this ability to discern truth from error, and we can't blame anybody else in our search for truth and say, well, well, they were convincing. He gives you the formula. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. You'll notice he's not going to show us how to make final judgment because there the, the command is judge not, that ye be not judged uh, evilly in this final context. He's going to show you how to make these intermediate judgments, to use Elder Oaks's uh, overlay here. He says, for everything which inviteth to do good, to persuade to believe in Christ, is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ, wherefore you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. That's beautiful, a perfect knowledge. You don't even need to have, have a belief in it. You can know this is inviting me, persuading me, it, it tastes good, it, it elevates my soul, it makes me want to be a better person, I feel I taste the fruits of the Spirit, then you can know that's of God, it's good. Now the opposite, verse 17, whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil, for after this manner doth the devil work. For he persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one, neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. Keep in mind, Mormon is speaking to his audience. Moroni is either got a, he's either got a transcript of that talk that was written down at the time, or Moroni was old enough and he was there and he remembers it and the Spirit's helping him write down the exact words. We don't know. But keep in mind, Mormons speaking to his audience living in a very, very wicked world with a society that's imploding. Um, it's got some ups and downs to it, but the general, general trend is downward for him. But Mormon has also seen our day. Moroni has seen our day, and Moroni chose to include it. That signals to me that, wow, these, these um, teachings aren't intended to just be applicable to Mormon's audience back in the the 4th century AD, but Moroni, with his prophetic mantle, now made them relevant to us because he saw our day and he's seeing the need for us to, to be able to make these intermediate judgments between good and evil. Now, 
I need to point something out here. Sometimes we put so much emphasis on the good versus evil kinds of dichotomies or arguments that we miss out on some of the relevancy of what the scriptures are teaching us. Let me show you what I mean. Most of you probably aren't going to be walking down a sidewalk sometime this week and all of a sudden be tempted to rob a bank and have the Holy Ghost prompt you to go and do a ministering visit. And you're sitting there saying, Who, which, which one should I do? And, and if that were the case, then verse 16 and 17 would be really easy as a formula to say, okay, well, I'm not going to rob the bank, I'm going to choose the good, not the evil. The reality is, is most of the time, most of us aren't being tempted between ultimate evil stuff and ultimate good stuff. Much of the time, we're tempted with other things. Sometimes it's not even a temptation. Sometimes it's a choice that we need to now judge, make another intermediate judgment, and it's a judgment between that which is good, that which is better, and that which is best. Once again, can you remember President, uh, or at the time it was Elder Delaney Chokes, his great talk back in October of 2007 called Good, Better, and Best. This is where the power of intermediate judgment can be really, really helpful. I'm not taking away the fact that we need to make intermediate judgments between good and evil. I'm just saying that often our judgments need to come in that good realm between that which is good, that which is better, and that which is best, and the Holy Ghost can then help us discern the degree to which these things are going to persuade people to believe in Christ and to be good and to move forward in their life. Okay, now verse 18, and now my brethren, seeing that ye know the light by which ye may judge, which light is the light of Christ? Remember, we know that that is given to all people. Everybody has the light of Christ. See that ye do not judge wrongfully, for with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. Ah, oh, this is uh, this is a beautiful concept, um, and to to clarify this point, I'm going to triangulate it with a little parable from the Savior's uh, teachings near the end of his life in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14 through 30, you get the parable of the talents. So just really quickly, you'll remember we had one individual who got five talents, one who was given two talents, and another who was given one. Now you'll notice what happens when it comes to judging here, okay? Follow this through. This guy turned his talents into ten, this guy turned his talents into four, this guy buried his and then unburied it with one. If you, if you actually look carefully at the parable and the outcome of the parable, we can learn a great deal about judging. Okay, look at verse uh, 21 of Matthew chapter 25 in this parable. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. That's what he told this guy. Brothers and sisters, when the Lord returned to give those, uh, or to um, meet his servants again, these servants are bringing the talents thinking they're giving them back to the Lord because they don't belong to me, and in return he is sending them back out with the talents, retaining the talents. And if you were to interview this guy as he walks out and say, tell me, what kind of a being is the Lord? I think you would hear words like kind, gracious, loving, amazing, powerful, I, I would do anything for him, I love him. I think that's what you'd hear from this guy. Enter the second guy. Notice in verse 23, his Lord said unto him, well done, 
good and faithful servant, just a side note here, the only difference between verse 21 and 23 is the word thou, and the King James translators added it. It's not even in the Greek texts because the the Greek text for verse 21 and 23 is identical. There's, there's zero textual difference between those two in any of the Greek manuscripts. So, basically, he's saying the, the same thing to this second guy, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and he walks out. If you were to interview him, I think he would judge the Lord the same way as the first guy did. Now, here's where the lesson comes in. Look at how the third guy judged the Lord. Listen carefully to the words. In fact, if you were to interview the third guy on his way in, carrying the talent, somewhere between 60 and 150 pounds, depending on which talent they're, they're using, but it's a big weight, he's carrying that in. If you were to interview him and say, hey, tell me, uh, tell me about the Lord. What kind of a person is he? See how he would respond based on what you hear here. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed, and I was afraid, and I went and hid the talent in the earth. Lo, there, thou hast, that is thine. You can see, you can feel dripping from this page. You can feel the, the fear and the, the anxiety of this guy thinking, you are such a mean Lord. You, you, you take things that aren't really yours and you, ah, oh, here's your talent. I, you've got it. I'm glad. I, I was never comfortable having it. Take it back. At which point, I think if these two were listening to the conversation, they would say, what are you talking about? We can't, we can't both be talking about the same person here. That, that's impossible. And yet, look what happens. Verse 26, his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. And then he takes the talent from him, gives it to the other, and then in verse 30, cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's kind of a sad ending to the parable, but brothers and sisters, if you look at this parable from the context of what Mormon's teaching, uh, see that ye do not judge wrongfully, for with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. Makes it feel like more of a final judgment realm. If your perception, your judgment of God is that he is a being who is harsh and angry and unforgiving and vengeful, then how are you going to live your life? What are the fruits of your life going to be? Your, your efforts to do anything good are going to be done out of fear. You're not going to progress on the covenant path if that's how you've judged God to be, if that's the kind of being you worship. Uh, and the grand irony of this parable is, for with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. They saw the Lord, they judged the Lord as a merciful, kind, gracious, loving, grace-filled being, and what did they see? Exactly what they had pictured in their mind. He judged the Lord wrongly. I could be simplifying this way too much. I might be totally wrong on this, but brothers and sisters, I choose in my own life to not see God as a vengeful, angry being who's pacing back and forth with a furrowed brow and a big book with my name on it and a permanent marker in his hand waiting for me to mess up again so he can make another mark against me, so he can build a case to condemn me. I choose to judge our God as a being of mercy, a being of love, a being of power and knowledge. He's, he's, not, he's not ignorant to my sins and my weakness. He knows all about them more than I do, but he's looking down with outstretched arms and an inviting warm smile on his face, encouraging me to try to work more closely with him to overcome them and uh, to continually repent, even if it means repenting again and again and again.
something uh, that Pope Francis has taught. And by the way, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we look for truth wherever it comes from. If it's true, then we embrace it. And I want to share something that, uh, that I learned from something I read uh, from Pope Francis. He said, you will get tired of repenting far before Jesus will get tired of forgiving you. I think that's right on. I think he is far more merciful, far kinder, far more gracious with us than we are with ourselves or than we are with him. And uh, so that's those are those are important principles for us to remember as we move forward making all kinds of intermediate judgments in our life. Isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ so beautiful and so full of love and light? And we just love to be with you guys and just feel the spirit that comes from being with God in his word. And as we've been feeling this love of God, I want to focus on that for just a few minutes, that very word, love. That really is the purpose of the Book of Mormon, is to message and to share and to elucidate and to explain and to demonstrate the love of God, that we can know that it is there for us at all times. Now, during this year, I've spent a lot of time talking about the meanings of words, and let me spend time on one of the most important words that shows up in the Book of Mormon. Actually, it doesn't show up a lot, but I think it's one of the most significant words. And I want to point out that in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon, names are often the lesson. So when we know the meanings of names, we often know what the main lesson is to be shared. Now, there's many lessons to get out of the scriptures, but when you know the names, you know what the lesson or the theme or the thesis is. So let's talk about Mormon. He is our faithful editor who very seldom inserts himself. It's not about him. He spends all this time trying to forefront Jesus, and he's just way in the background, just trying to be a window to Jesus. It's incredible. He wants us to focus on what matters. Now, let's take a look at what his name may mean in Egyptian. The word more may come from the Egyptian word Mary, which means love. And the moan of Mormon, well, let me just make sure we all know what we're talking about here, Mormon's name, may come from the ancient Egyptian word to mean everlasting or enduring. So, if Mormon's name is the lesson for the entire Book of Mormon, his name is then love endures forever. And whose love are we talking about? The love of God. Let's look at how this plays out in this speech that Moroni preserves for us. Look particularly, again, at verses 46 and 47, and look for the theme love. And remember, Mormon's name may mean love endures forever, and he may be concluding his speech by witnessing and testifying of the meaning of his own name, which is the entire point of the plan of salvation wrapped up in the love of God. Verse 46, wherefore, my beloved brethren, notice the word love right there, if ye have not charity, another word for love, ye are nothing, for charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all, for all things must fail, but charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever, and whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. Now, just consider this. If we translated back into the Egyptian, verses 40 and 46, 46 and 47, 
the phrase, charity never faileth, would be translated as Mormon. So sisters out there, members of the Relief Society, what is your motto? Charity never faileth. And if you wanted to say that in Egyptian, you would say Mormon. And here again in verse 47, charity endureth forever, or the pure love of Christ endures forever. You could summarize verse 47 with the name Mormon. So if you look again at the totality of chapter 7 of Moroni, look for the theme of love. Look for words like love, beloved, and charity, and maybe just highlight them. How often does that word show up? And just, again, the name is the lesson, among the many lessons you could get out of this chapter. And I'd like to then highlight, what is the name of the book? The Book of Mormon. What if we translated this back into the Egyptian and then retranslate it into English? We would call this the Book of God's Everlasting Love. Think about that. Now, I know we try not to call ourselves Mormons anymore, but what if you did take on that title? You didn't use the word Mormon, but you said, I'm a representative of God's everlasting love. I'm a witness of God's everlasting love. I'm somebody who has tasted of God's everlasting love. I'm somebody who desires to feel and experience and to share with others God's everlasting love. So I just love that the Book of Mormon itself tells us right up front, this is the book about God's everlasting love. And as Tyler taught earlier from Pope Francis, that love is so far beyond our comprehension. We will wear ourselves out long before God ever wears himself out providing love to us. So in your journey, just remember, as you dig deep into God's word, know that it was preserved as an act of love for you. And we invite you to feel God's love yet again in your life. Okay, now Mormon asks a really important question in verse 27. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased because Christ hath ascended into heaven and hath sat down on the right hand of God to claim of the Father his rights of mercy which he hath upon the children of men? Do, do we no longer see miracles? That's a really profound question. And he answers it in verse 28. He hath answered the ends of the law and he claimeth all those who have faith in him, and they who have faith in him will cleave unto every good thing. Wherefore, he advocateth the cause of the children of men, and he dwelleth eternally in the heavens. And because he hath done this, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. Neither have angels ceased to minister unto the children of men. And then he describes this beautiful interaction between God, angels, and prophets, and men, the, the rest of the world, men and women. Look at verse 30. Speaking of the angels, they are subject unto him to minister according to the word of his command, showing themselves unto them of strong faith and a firm mind in every form of godliness. Many years ago when I was taking institute classes at uh, Utah State University up in Logan, Utah, uh, I had so many amazing teachers. One of them in particular that I took many classes from named Jerry Wilson, who had a huge impact on my life and my development as a, as a student of the gospel and as a teacher. He taught me for the first time this beautiful concept here in verse 30 through 32 that has just helped me understand the scriptures and life and the blessing of living on the earth with living prophets uh, more than, than many other things that have happened. Here's the doctrine. The angels come and they part the veil and they reveal themselves to the, the word that he uses here in verse 31 is declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord that they may bear testimony of him. So there are these special opportunities given to a group that the scriptures call 
the chosen vessels. They can now bear testimony. And by the way, this is one of the the beautiful descriptors that we get for the, the mother of Jesus Christ, Mary. She is a chosen vessel. She, she is able to, to bring forth into the world the very Son of God as a chosen vessel. So there are multiple ways to look at this phrase. But in this context that we're talking about here specifically, the chosen vessels of the Lord that know certain things can now go and bear testimony. Notice verse 32, and by so doing the Lord God prepareth the way that the residue of men may have faith in Christ. This is, this is fascinating. So this person can bear testimony to all these different groups. What Mormon here is calling the residue of the people can now have faith because they've heard the testimony of one who knows and now they can bear testimony moving outward from there. Let me make something clear. I don't, I don't know. I don't have, have a clue as to why God doesn't just part the veil and talk to everybody at once from the podium of heaven and tell us what to do and then close the veil and say, now, go do it. He doesn't seem to use that option very often. He seems to usually go with this option that's described here of revealing things to the chosen vessel so they'll then bear testimony so the residue of the people can have faith in him. There's something powerful about two gifts of the Spirit. One of them is the gift to know, and there's another gift of the Spirit which is the gift to believe on the testimony or on the words of those who know. And once again, we live in a world that seems to want to force it to say everybody has to be on an equal level of knowing things at the same level. That doesn't seem to be what the, the scriptures are teaching. It seems that it's a gift of the Spirit to be able to listen to those chosen vessels who do know, and when we, when we sit at the feet of prophets, seers, and revelators and hear their testimonies, it's a gift of the Spirit to be able to believe on their words and to be able to strengthen our faith in Christ through that belief on their words. And that's how our, our missionaries go throughout the world, preaching this, this gospel so that people can hopefully experience that gift of the Spirit to believe on their words until they get to the point where that belief can turn into actual faith to move forward to repent of their sins and to get baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and make that covenant connection themselves with God moving forward. Now, turning the page over, uh, he, he comes into a little segment here in, the, uh, in these next few verses talking about hope and the power of hope. We have had so many wonderful talks in general conference given on the subject of hope from, from a variety of sisters and brothers who have spoken from that pulpit to us, and you could, you could go and Google general conference hope and find a whole list of talks that address this. Uh, not in a general conference way, but uh, at BYU this fall semester, our very first devotional was, was given by President and Sister Worthen, and in President Kevin Worthen's address, he spent a lot of time talking about hope here in Moroni 7, and he, he shared a thought that resonated with me. I love it, and I've thought this for years, but the way he worded it was beautiful because there's – I've heard people argue to the point sometimes where it becomes almost contentious about the difference between faith and hope and which comes first, hope or faith, and which is needed and people will, will point out one verse here or one verse there to try to prove their point in the argument. I love what President Worthen did in his talk. He talked about two types of hope, that hope does come before faith and hope does come after faith and is built on faith. 
It's both. There's, there shouldn't be an argument as to whether it comes before or after because hope comes before and after. He called the first level of hope a nascent hope or a beginning, a forming hope where you, you hope for something and then you build your faith on that and then on that foundation of faith, now you build this kind of hope that he's describing in this first column of page 524 in our English Book of Mormon. Verse 39, but behold, my beloved brethren, I judge better things of you. I judge that you have faith in Christ because of your meekness. For if you have not faith in him, then you're not fit to be numbered upon among the, the people of his church. And then verse 40, again, my beloved brethren, I would speak unto you concerning hope. How is it that you can attain unto faith, save ye shall have hope? And verse 42, if a man have faith, he must needs have hope, for without faith there cannot be any hope. Are you noticing how everything begins and ends in this discussion with hope? We may have lost lots of things in our life, but our prayer is that you never lose your hope, your hope in Christ, whether it be that beginning kind of hope or that foundation built on faith kind of hope that propels us into this next segment. Notice verse 44, none is acceptable before God save the meek and lowly in heart, and if a man be meek and lowly in heart and confess by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, he must needs have charity, for if you have not charity, he is nothing, wherefore he must needs have charity, which now launches us into this incredible discourse on charity. You're going to read about charity or the, the pure love of Christ or uh, agape in other scriptures, but I don't know of any section that is clearer, that is more profound in this discussion of, of the pure love of Christ than Mormon's speech here. In fact, let me ask you, let, let me do it this way. What if your, uh, a member of your bishopric came up to you or of your branch presidency and asked you to give a talk in an upcoming sacrament meeting and they said, your topic is charity. Speak for 10 to 12 minutes on the topic of charity. My hunch is, my guess is, that many of us would instantly start thinking in our minds of charitable things that people can do to demonstrate charity, and this would be the essence of our talk. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not judging, I'm not condemning this, I'm pointing out that words do matter, definitions do matter. Um, the fascinating thing is, if you look at verse 47, he gives you the definition, but charity is the pure love of Christ. Notice, these are my efforts to reflect Christ's pure love. They're charitable acts, no question about that, they're wonderful, they're, they're reflective of God's love. If you're going to give a talk on charity, then this would be the better representation of what charity is. It's God's perfect – it's it's the pure love of Christ. Elder Holland has talked about this, where he said, true charity, pure love, isn't what you and I produce, in essence. He says it's only ever been experienced once, and it's it's coming from Christ, that it, it's his pure love, which now means Whenever I go and do these kinds of things, I'm simply taking a portion of what Christ has given me and I'm now reflecting it outward to those around me and sometimes trying to reflect some of it back up to God as I try to love God with all my heart, my mind, and strength. But the reality is, is he loved you first before he asked you to love him in return. Now, let me demonstrate something else for you. Look at verse 45. I'm going to demonstrate this. Pay close attention. You ready? And charity suffereth long and is kind, 
and envieth not, and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Okay. I told you I was going to demonstrate something for you. Let's see how well I did. Uh, I won't be able to get this feedback from you, but you just think to yourself, answer this question, how many of you stayed 100% focused 100% of the time while I was reading verse 45? One verse, these descriptions of charity. We do this in the church quite frequently when we're teaching. We'll ask people to read a, a verse or two or three or four of Scripture, and then at the end we'll ask them a question when in reality many people in the class will have been zoned out to one degree or another while we're reading it, uh, just because that's human tendency, that's how our brains seem to, to function for whatever reason. So let me share with you a little principle. As a teacher in, in your family or in a church setting or in a personal scripture study setting, something shifts, something changes when you go into a verse of scripture with a question on your mind. You're trying to find something. If you go in with what we might call a look for, look for this, it changes things. So let me try this again with verse 45, modeling now this look for principle. Uh, look for not just a random list of things that describe charity, because the reality is, is if we're not careful, we are going to talk about charity as if it's this, this thing, this entity unto itself, this blob somewhere out there in the universe that's just, that's just floating there and it's filled with all of these attributes. Uh, the reality is charity is not a disembodied thing. Charity is an attribute of Christ. It's an attribute and a characteristic of God. It's something you and I want to try to become more like. We, we want to be more like God, and he is a God of love. So instead of it being disembodied, have it be an attribute of the Savior himself, which means you can take the word charity in verse 45 and draw a little line and write the name Christ. Now, look for what happens in verse 45 as we take that perspective. I want you to think of times in the scriptures that you know of where Christ has demonstrated each of these characteristics. And Christ suffereth long and is kind. And I have to just pause there. Notice, suffereth long and is kind get put together. It's, it's fairly simple and straightforward to be kind when you're in good health, when everything's flowing smoothly for you. It's an entirely different thing to be in the midst of a long, painful, suffering episode of life and to still be kind, and yet we see that. Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's finished three to four hours of, of this intense suffering in Gethsemane. When the arresting party comes, Peter's going to cut off Malchus's ear. You and I would be tempted to look at Malchus and say, you think that hurts? <laughs> you know nothing about pain, but not Jesus. Jesus is able to suffer long and still be kind to, to an enemy a guy who came to arrest him, and he goes over and he heals him in Luke's account. Uh, on the cross, he's lifted up upon the cross, and, and one of the first things that he seems to have said is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We assume he's speaking there of the Roman soldiers who just finished uh, putting him on the cross in a cruel way and his statement is, please forgive them, suffereth long, and is kind, uh, and kind to his mother, it's to his enemies, his family, he, and it's all in the midst of 
the most intense suffering this, this universe will know. Notice the next part. Christ envieth not, is not puffed up, seeketh not his own. Are you seeing instances in your mind's eye as we go through here? He's not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Once again, brothers and sisters, you're not trying to approach some nebula out in the universe. You're trying to come unto Christ and to become more like him through his merits, his mercy, and his grace, ironically through his charity. He, he will teach us how to take on these attributes if, we're, if we'll more fully um, listen to him. Look at verse uh, 47 again. But charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. What's the solution for us? Verse 48, wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, ye, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope that we may be purified even as he is pure. Amen. Did you notice it? We shall see him as he is because we'll be like him. All of these attributes of charity or these attributes of Christ in verse 45, we've been working on them with Christ and he's been helping us do better. And that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect today. It just means you're going to try a little harder to be a little better to use President Hinckley's phrase, at implementing these, uh, these attributes. These little arrows, these little attempts at charitable acts can get bigger and bigger and bigger over time until we can become more like him and then we'll see him as he is because we've become like him. Our, our words, our hands, our fruits, our works, have become in line with his. Now, chapter 8, this is a letter that Mormon wrote to Moroni when he found out that some people were instituting infant baptism, and he addressed some struggles with infant baptism. Let me point out something here. Uh, verse 8 is where Mormon found out about what was going on, he went to the Lord, he sought the Lord's will concerning it, and verse 8, he gives you the words from the Holy Ghost, principles taught to him by the Holy Ghost in verse 8. Here's the principle. Listen to the words of Christ your Redeemer, your Lord and your God. Behold, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician but they that are sick, wherefore little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. Wherefore the curse of Adam is taken from them in me, that it hath no power over them, and the law of circumcision is done away in me. And he says, after this manner did the Holy Ghost manifest the word of God unto me. So it's back to President Nelson's challenge of hear him. So the words of Christ came to Mormon through the power of the Holy Ghost, that's the principle. And then what Mormon did is he gave the practices that the church was supposed to implement in his day, and uh, he starts giving those in verse 10, telling Moroni, his son, what to teach and how to apply these, these principles from uh, what the Holy Ghost taught him. Look at verse 16. Woe be unto them that shall pervert the ways of the Lord after this manner, for they shall perish except they repent. Behold, I speak with boldness, having authority from God, and I fear not what man can do, for perfect love casteth out all fear. Uh, verse 20, he that saith the little children need baptism denieth the mercies of Christ and setteth at naught the atonement of him and the power of his redemption. And he, he talks in here about uh, 
God not being a respecter of persons. Can you picture a little baby that died before it was baptized coming to the judgment bar and saying, uh, I didn't get a chance to be baptized, I, I died before that possibility was given to me. Can you picture a God that said, oh, then you have no place with me in my kingdom and sending that child off? It's, that's a harsh doctrine when you look at this idea of a God who is not a respecter of persons and the power of the atonement taking care of anything that needs to be taken care of for these children who are incapable of sinning, therefore not needing to repent nor be baptized until they're, uh, they come of age. It's a beautiful uh, principle to teach us another attribute of God. His, his ability to, to not be a respecter of persons, which, by the way, back to this, you can plug charity in here, but you can plug everything else that's good in the gospel in here as well. All of the attributes of God can be fit into this same diagram. No respecter of persons, God gives us that, now we work on trying to become more like him. True faith, God had ultimate faith in us in his godly way long before he ever asked us to have faith in him, so now we try to return some of that faith as well as act in faith, reflecting these godly attributes. Uh, faith, hope, charity, mercy, forgiveness, now we get to work on it. This, this is one uh, symbolic visualization of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything good comes to us from God, and then we work on trying to be a reflecting mirror, so to speak, of God's attributes and characteristics and perfections with people around us, as well as reflecting some of it back up. And that is is beautifully laid out again, um, not just with attributes like charity, but with principles of the gospel like Mormon addresses in chapter 8. And then chapter 9. This is a hard chapter. Uh, for some of you, this is going to be one of your least favorite chapters in the entire Book of Mormon because of how, how graphically painful it is. I'm not going to get into that part of the chapter. I'm going to focus on just a few verses. Verse 6, now, my beloved son, notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently, for if we should cease to labor, we should be brought under condemnation, for we have a labor to perform whilst in the tabernacle of clay, that we may conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. Coming from Mormon, that verse is beautiful. Knowing what's going on in his society, he's saying, everything's falling apart, but that's not an excuse for us to fall apart or for us to sit down and give up in our efforts. Mormon is a perfect example of somebody who just keeps doing everything he can to work with the people down to the bitterest of the bitter ends in, in the way they're living their life and the way these Lamanites and Nephites are interacting, Mormon and his son Moroni are going to continue to preach and teach and do what they can when the Lord allows them. Now, in closing, look at what he – look at what Mormon counsels his son to do, knowing what they're, what they're facing in their, in their society, in their culture, in their near future. Look at the hope. Try to notice the grace of God and, and see the charity, the pure love of God reflected from heaven through Mormon to his son Moroni and by extension to us today in our world that needs this message as much as ever before. My son, be faithful in Christ, and may not the things which I have written grieve thee to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up and may his sufferings and death and the showing his body unto our fathers and his mercy and long suffering, and the hope of his glory and of eternal life rest in your mind forever. And may the grace of God the Father, whose throne is high in the heavens, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power, 
until all things shall become subject unto him. Be and abide with you forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we close, our hope, our prayer for all of us is that we will never tire of turning to Christ, turning to God, seeking to emulate his perfect example, and continually repenting again and again and again on this covenant path, knowing that he is merciful and mighty to save, and that is how we have judged him, is a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of power to forgive and to cleanse us and to help us move along this path, becoming more and more like him. He lives and he loves you, and I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.